This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. My name is Hal Hester. Welcome to Vine Life. Glad you're here this morning. Hope that you are having a fantastic week. Things are going your way, and if they're not, that you are wrapped securely in the arms of Jesus with hope. Good to see you. Hey, you know, this morning is a special morning to me. Uh, I actually, you know, had the chance to say hello to a couple of people, really specific, because, uh, you know, tomorrow is the 26th, and uh, it was literally on the 26th, 2000. Uh, uh, 12, that we had our first gathering in a living room to talk about what you are now uh, part of, uh, being Vine Life. And so we had our first gathering. So this weekend, all weekend, I've just been kind of going like, yeah, 12 years ago, we were doing this. 12 years ago, we were doing that. Uh, you know, some of those memories were really fun. Uh, some of them were like, oh yeah, 12 years ago, this time I was sitting at a roadside waiting for them to come bring me a new tire. So, uh, but otherwise, it was a great trip, you know. So anyhow, good to be with you this morning and to celebrate that. So we are today continuing in our series in the Gospel of John. And, you know, as you saw in the opening video, the, you know, and as it would imply, the major theme of the Gospel of John is the uh, whole topic of eternal life. Uh, as we've said throughout the week, if, uh, throughout these weeks, if you haven't been with us, is that even in the use of the word life that occurs throughout uh, the book of John, uh, or the Gospel of John, is that the word life is most often either sozo or zoe, also the phrase eternal life or abundant life, and that is different from the Greek word uh, bios, which you think of our use of biology, the study of life, uh, it is a specifically different term uh, to uh, communicate, not just the idea of living, of just existing or something like that, but it is communicating throughout the Gospel of John that there is a life that is greater, that is transcendent than just simply existing. There's this expectation that as you and I come into the, the way, into the eternal life of Jesus, that that begins the moment that you and I believe, that there is an experience in which you and I connect with God, and that what God is doing in the midst of that is rather than focused on getting us into heaven, it's getting heaven into us. He is trying to put his life into us through the power of the gospel so that we not only exist in this world, but there's an expectation that his transcendent life, his abundant life would be lived out through us from the moment we believe, and that that would be an invitation to the world around us to come and to experience eternal life, even in the present. Today, we're continuing our study in a rather long narrative. We started last week with the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. Those two accounts actually begin a longer discourse. Uh, today, we are continuing that discourse with Jesus as the bread of life, and it will continue into next week talking about the Feast of Booths. So there's you know, just a lot there to unpack. Uh, unfortunately, because that text is so long, I couldn't hold it together in one message or we'd still be here from last week. So, uh, no, I'm kidding. But, uh, you know, intentionally, uh, we've broken this up into three uh, pieces. 
So over the next couple of weeks, you know, this, uh, hopefully you did it this week, but certainly let me encourage you to do it next week because it's only going to get a, a, to be a little bit longer discourse. So chapters 6 and 7 of John, if you would do yourself and me the favor of reading John 6 and 7 together, just kind of prepare your heart and mind before we get into the message. With that said, we're going to be in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 25 today. John 6, 25. If you want to open your Bible, phone, tablet, uh, paper, whatever you've got, uh, and uh, if you're using a phone or tablet, please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version, but whatever translation is in your lap is my favorite because that's the one you're reading. Let's take a look. John 6, beginning in verse 25, and we read these words. And they, when they found him, that is Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the, the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And so they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, for as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day, for it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. And this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, I live because the Father who sent whoever because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but they are, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So as I was saying at the you know, opening here, uh, keep in mind that this is all in the same context of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And I want you to think about as they, he was feeding the 5,000, just kind of the events unfolding there. Um, you know, taking the uh, five, you know, what I say, you know, the five loaves, we describe them more like biscuits or dinner rolls and a couple of sardines and multiplying them. And, uh, and of course, you know, feeding the crowd of 5,000 men plus uh, women and children that would have been there. And in the midst of it, he recognized that there was a stirring in the crowd in which there was a desire to take him by force to be king. I also mentioned to you in that, that it, in the complexity of all of this, that in light of the kind of messianic history that uh, for about 50 years previous to Jesus and about 50 years after his uh, ascending to heaven, that over the course of that hundred years, that there were literally thousands of people who at some time or another claimed to be the Messiah and had orchestrated revolts and different things. And typically what they would do is they would incite the crowd to the point that the crowd uh, and its enthusiasm would take them by force so they didn't have to declare themselves to be the Messiah, but they would imply heartily that they in fact were the Messiah. The crowd would rise up 
as proof that surely this person was truly the Messiah. They would anoint them king, and then they would summarily be destroyed by the Romans or the Herodians or whoever else uh, in quick order. And Jesus, just recognizing the frenzy in the crowd, the excitement overfeeding him, and uh, you know, playing into that, of course, uh, we want to think if you're looking for a Messiah, if you're a small band of uh, Jewish uh, folks who are looking to defeat the most powerful nation uh, on the earth, the Roman Empire that you know, swept from the Mediterranean uh, all the way uh, to the Atlantic, we're talking about a tremendously powerful force. Uh, in the course of all of that, you would be wanting someone, of course, who could like, you know, raise troops from the dead, feed them all on a sack lunch, etc. Uh, it would prove enormously uh, beneficial to a military enterprise. And so they had their ideas about who Messiah was, and they're kind of seeing everything he does uh, through that vein. They're not seeing it in the vein of what we are supposed to be getting it. They're seeing it in the vein of their political ideology. They're seeing it in the vein of the pressure that they're feeling. And, you know, we have to like, there's a point in which you and I also need to kind of legitimize in one way their sentiments, right? I mean, uh, if you are a people who are being oppressed in your own land, don't you want to get out from under it? Can you imagine like living someplace uh, and an occupying army has been there for many, many decades, uh, and they have kind of run your life. On top of that, they are a culture and a people who uh, are trying to enforce their culture, the, their ideology on you. Uh, they are making light of your God, even uh, making light of your way of life. Uh, and, and in the process, just kind of generally crushing you so that even while they're talking about the importance of freedom and democratic reforms and all those kind of things, that they would be uh, very abusive to you and not give you the same freedoms that they themselves enjoy, even as they declare the importance of their liberty, their right to vote and things like that. I mean, that was Rome. And so you and I should be able to, just in our hearts, minds, imagination, kind of mull that over as a people who uh, in our country love uh, the republic value of being able to have representatives and vote and have uh, freedoms and, uh, and to not be oppressed by any other people. Uh, I think most of us uh, can identify even with like, you know, during the lockdown, when some of our freedoms were restricted in different ways in which we like wrestled with that as a nation, right? I mean, it was, it was hard for us to deal with. Uh, some of it uh, we felt like was uh, done uh, you know, in, to, to benefit, and other times we questioned whether or not that was true. Many of us felt like that was just nothing but oppressive. Uh, I, I, so just kind of mull over, if you will, in your heart and mind, like, what's happening to them in the midst of this and why they might see Messiah in that picture, in that way, right? I mean, uh, if you've read that you're going to be delivered, if you've read that there's help coming, uh, it's not unreasonable in their mind's eye, it's not unreasonable for you and I to see why they might have seen him in a very political light, why they would have read into the text in that way. 
And so uh, before we're dismissive of them or think less of them, <clears throat> we might just kind of relate it to some of our own life situations and, and really identify with the midst of their pain, right? And so here this is, you know, all happening. And, um, and you know, um, I can't help but think, you know, this, it crossed my mind. Uh, last week I was tying the uh, feeding of the 5,000 with the, uh, you know, the, the turning water into wine and just the, the, the huge miraculous nature of that. And just, you know, the thought crossed my mind this last week as I was thinking about it. I thought, well, you know, if Jesus made the best wine, so much so that everybody like was talking about how great the wine was, what do you think he makes the best bread too? I don't know. I'm just, I'm like going, I, it just, that one, you know, I'm sorry, that one's for free. But anyhow, um, you know, uh, at any rate, the, this crowd uh, that has been fed, has been dispersed. Jesus went up on the mountain. They went across the lake. Jesus then walks across the lake to his disciples uh, to the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. By this time, it would have been known as the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, around the time of the fall of Jerusalem, uh, Tiberius uh, uh, was, uh, as he became Caesar, he renamed the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Tiberias. You know, how, how generous of himself to name the sea after himself. But anyhow, uh, <clears throat> and uh, uh, so uh, all these events unfolding and everything, and um, as you can imagine, like nothing travels faster than gossip right? I mean, not even Jesus walking on the water is as fast as the gossip has spread all the way around the sea. I mean, if you take, I, I, I know my wife's going to say, where's the map? <laughs> Sorry, dear. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the size, we're talking about a very large sea. Uh, you know, think maybe in terms of something that you and I could relate to if you've ever been uh, up to the northern states, the Great Lakes, you know, like Lake Michigan, 75 miles across, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about a significant size lake, uh, and hence the name Sea. And so um, uh, the, the news has spread. Uh, now they're on the other side, and there is a fresh crowd. Some of them seem to have been present for the event the day before, but apparently there's a number that missed the feeding of the 5,000 and are there now, I, I, I guess, wanting to get their share, whatever that is. And there seems to be, of course, some religious leaders in the crowd that are comparing and contrasting the works of Jesus with that of Moses. And it's a fair and just thing in terms of their tradition. Uh, if you'll remember, Moses is the one who fed them uh, in the wilderness, the manna. And so uh, there has developed in what we call the Midrash or the traditions around uh, Messiah uh, that there is this expectation that because Moses fed the people that uh, the Messiah would come and feed them in the same way that he would bring, he would supply bread from heaven. Now, if you think in terms of what happened with the meal and the feeding on the hillside and how they were ready to take him by force to be Messiah, you can see how this is really playing into the tradition. And now that word's gotten out and there are Jewish religious leaders who are present 
And they've heard about the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe some of them, they're comparing and contrasting. It's not unreasonable in many ways. Um, uh, yet, again, it's simply tradition. There's no actual statement in the text anywhere that the Messiah would feed people like Moses did, but that was the tradition. And so the idea is the first deliverer gave us manna from heaven, and so the last deliverer would also supply manna from heaven. And so there in the group, we've got kind of three distinct subgroups, if you will. We've got those who just seem to be out for dinner and a show, you know, ooh, do us a trick, do us a trick. Then we got those who are pursuing the signs and wonders in an ends to themselves uh, and looking for the Messiah, but they're kind of missing the point, right? They're, they're all stirred up about that. They want to see signs and wonders. And then we've got religious leaders who are testing Jesus based on tradition, and primarily to find fault. And I don't know about you, but I just kind of, my first thought, especially because I've pastored like in community churches, charismatic churches, and fundamentalist churches, and I thought, wow, this just like seems to be the heritage of the people of God all the time, right? We like kind of divide into some groups, you know, uh, and uh, well, Jesus challenges them all on the grounds that they were not doing the works of the Father. Verses 27 to 34 there, and that the real desire of God was that they would have a sincere faith in him. Now, to that end, Jesus begins to redirect them from the manna from heaven to the actual gift from heaven, and that actual gift being himself, the bread of life. Now, part of that is a compare and contrast. But what is being compared and contrasted on the part of Jesus is the difference between the manna in the wilderness and himself. The manna in the wilderness uh, could only satisfy for the moment. In fact, if you think back on that story, if you were to look back, uh, don't do it right now, I'll, I'll lose you here. Uh, if you go back reading, I know how that works. You, get, you start reading, oh, let me just look. And then you start reading, and next thing you know, you have no idea what I said. So, um, it happens to me too. And so, uh, you know, the reality being uh, that in that moment when the manna comes from heaven and they would go out each day and they would collect a little bit of manna uh, and they were told only take what you need for the day. And if they kept more than they needed uh, as that uh, dew settled on the ground, the manna settled on the ground like dew, uh, if they took more than they needed, uh, and tried to keep some for the next day, it would spoil. It would suddenly become full of maggots, and it was disgusting and unedible. Uh, and it was a reminder to them that they needed to depend on the Father, that they, that they were not depending on their own uh, ability to gather, to do, uh, that uh, even though they were uh, going out to gather these things, but they were reminded just to come each day and to depend on Him, to come each day and to press into the Father and to, uh, and to receive from Him. Boy, I could just kind of go to preaching on that one if I wanted to, but we're not in that text, so we won't. But you get the idea is this sense of utter dependence on God, and then on, on the Sabbath, they, before the Sabbath, they would gather two days' worth so that they didn't have to uh, gather on the Sabbath. But nonetheless, this 
uh, whole picture is that they would go out and they would gather, but it was enough just for today. It would satisfy them for today. Of course, the other part that we know is what? That they grumbled and complained about it. Oh, man, back in Egypt, we had, you know, we had leek uh, and onion soup, you know, and it was so much better than manna. And, you know, and, and I mean, we were slaves, but, you know, it was just so wonderful to be able to eat onion soup. I just, wow. Um, and so what you realize is that nothing really satisfies, right? There's nothing about the manna that really satisfies. Uh, instead, it's kind of one of those things that where, you know, those, uh, we have those convenient memories, you know, when you think about growing up in childhood and you look back on it with this fondness of the things you despised as a child. You know? So somebody says, oh man, I just, you know, a pot of beans, nothing like a good pot of beans, you know. Really? Like, do you often eat a pot of beans now? No, but when I was a kid and we were poor, there was always a pot of beans. It reminds me of childhood. And if I started asking you questions about that childhood, it'd probably be, we were dirt poor and there was nothing else but beans, but somehow I've sterilized that memory and now a pot of beans is a big deal. And so that's the way it was at my house was growing up was that, uh, not that we were lacking, but my parents had grown up in the depression and so this pot of beans was ever on the stove, uh, always being eaten a little bit out of all the time as if it was just, you know, manna from heaven. But anyhow, you get my point. He's redirecting because the manna from heaven sustained their biological life. But the reality is, is it didn't do anything to bring them any closer to eternal life. It was good for a single day, but it absolutely changed nothing. There was a lesson that was meant to be learned in the midst of it. They were supposed to be learning that they could depend on the Father. They were supposed to be learning that uh, they were needed to be in close communion with Him and know Him, uh, and, and therefore finding their utter sense of dependence on Him. But as it often occurs... When we don't have, we blame God, but when we do have, we credit ourselves. Anybody ever struggle with that? Like, you know, that job you go to every day and you talk about how hard you worked and how you earned all those things right up to the point when you don't have it, and then suddenly we're praying to God and asking Him for another one? You know, like that, but not quite the same. So we have this contrast here and how they're, they're sustained for a single day, but it changes nothing. And to that end, Jesus makes what's easy to overlook, especially in the English. Jesus says, I am the bread of life come down from heaven. Jesus actually says it three times in varying manners. Uh, in 635 and 641, 648. But the clear message is Yahweh, the great I am, is present among you. It's very clear in its Greek construction. It's not so clear uh, in the English. 
but we have I am multiplies the bread. I am walks on the water. I am does great signs and wonders, all pointing to the fact that Yahweh is there among them, one greater than Moses. Moses gave you food that was good for a day. I am gives you the bread that sustains you forever. I am gives you eternal life. I am the bread of heaven. And in the midst of that, the vast majority miss the metaphor. Some miss it because, well, they just don't, they plain don't get it. Anybody here, you know, don't raise your hand on this, but anybody here ever struggle with metaphor? You read it, then somebody else comes along and says, wow, there's a really powerful metaphor there. And you go, there is? <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay, show it to me, you know. Um, and so you may have like, been very frustrated in English class. I, I get that, you know, your literature class. Some of them miss the metaphor because, well, they're looking for a fight, and now they've found something to fight about. Husbands and wives can especially relate to this. You know, like when you're having an argument and you're not listening. I mean, you're listening. You're looking for something to pick a fight about or to win the argument, and you're not really listening, and some of the dumbest fights you've ever had in your whole life was when you were on the same page and arguing for the same thing, but you were so busy not listening, yet didn't hear the obvious agreement. We, we call it my family going to Abilene. There's actually a, a whole, uh, you can look it up on YouTube, there's a whole video about what it means to go to Abilene when you fight about the things you agree about, and that most often people actually fight about the things they agree about, not the things they disagree about. It's a social theory. Anyhow, you, you don't care. None of the point. My point just simply being this is that they couldn't hear it because they weren't actually listening. They were just looking for a fight. And so that sounds like something good to fight about, right? I mean, he's talking about cannibalism, right? Let's have a fight. Some of them Miss the metaphor simply because they just don't like the show. It wasn't entertaining enough. I came for magic tricks. I'm not impressed, David Copperfield. You know, I, I was looking for something much more impressive than handing out bread and fish. But the clear message to everyone who has ears to hear is that Jesus was and is Yahweh. Specifically, he drops the hint to us there in verse 45. In verse 45... He says, it's written in the prophets. He is literally quoting Isaiah 54.13. Isaiah 54.13 in the ESV. I think that's up on the screen. Can we put that up on the screen? Yes, no? Ah, there we go. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Now, does it show it? That yes. Okay, and so you'll notice that the Lord is capitalized there. If you take a look in your uh, Bible, uh, especially if you have a paper, you know, pages there, uh, you'll notice that the L-O-R-D, the O-R-D part is still in caps. It's smaller, but uh, it's a particular font that occurs. If you just like go back to your Old Testament and kind of flip around a little bit, you'll find that specific font for Lord over and over again uh, in your Bible. It's common to almost every uh, translation in the English today. Uh, and what that's telling you whenever you see that is that the, you know, in the Septuagint, the Greek version, uh, it, it says the word Lord, 
Uh, but there in the Hebrew, it's the personal name of God, Yahweh. That's why that text is, uh, is in that font like that. And so uh, what is he saying? He says, all your children shall be taught by Yahweh. I am and Yahweh are the same name. So there's this clear picture, right, of like we're watching as we're reading through those chapters. He's feeding the 5,000, uh, taking five loaves and a couple of fish. He's walked across the lake on the water. Uh, now, you know, I mean, we're, gonna, we're just watching these uh, miracles unfold, and they're all like creative level miracles, like the one who spoke all things into existence. And you and I can hearken back to John chapter 1, which says that all things were created through him and by him and without him. Nothing that was made was made. You and I are having this constant pointing back to the fact that uh, when John the Baptist is preparing the way of the Lord, that same font again uh, being employed in the original passage in Isaiah, uh, you're preparing the way of Yahweh. So over and over again, like this message is coming through. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. And we're supposed to be like, get, you and I are supposed to be getting this. I am, I am, three times in just like one little passage. I mean, it's like he's virtually rubbing their nose in it. Like, come on, get the picture. And yet, here's the reality. They don't get it. The vast majority don't get it. In fact, in this particular situation, they become offended at him. He says, if you know Yahweh, then you know me, because I am. Now, on the same note, as believers in Jesus living in post-resurrection, you and I can see uh, also how, like John is alluding to the Eucharist, right? As we broke bread this morning, had communion together, and you and I can read some things into that. You know, only those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. And, uh, you know, I, at the same time, let me be clear, don't push that point too hard into some kind of secret or hidden or allegorical meaning. Um, it's a good allusion to the Eucharist as a literary device. Uh, it is questionable interpretation from a literary standpoint, you know, if you and I make it too much about communion as a sacrament or something like that. Don't, don't read too much into that. That's, that's not healthy. But but still, there's that, that picture, right? I mean, because he's a good writer. And so there's this picture that you and I know that as we uh, partake in that, that we're speaking uh, in a bigger sense, that bigger picture of that the bread of life, the one come down from heaven is with us and for us. So following this, we have John's commentary, you know, about the stumbling of many uh, of the disciples. And we're told in verse 64 that Jesus knew. Jesus knew. He knew who would betray him. He knew who was among them, among his disciples. Uh, the larger group, we're not talking about the twelve. We're talking about the, the larger group even. And so we watch in this moment 
we're, we're just kind of like about a third of the way through, right, in terms of length of time, uh, not in terms of the text, but in terms of length of time of his ministry. And uh, he's really, at this point, they're really beginning to gain some momentum. And it's like he's just, he knows these things. And so what does he do? He kind of intentionally pokes the bear. You know, he just kind of like, uh, you know, points out these things. And uh, it, it's, it's clear that he's aware of how difficult it is for some of the people to hear and so he presses on with the metaphor, you know, with this whole imagery uh, until um, it disperses them. They, they, a lot of them turn away from him. I, this is too hard. Have, any, have you discovered that sometimes following Jesus is hard? Anyone? I, I always love when people tell me things like, oh, you know, your, your religion's just a crutch. <laughs> like, yes, let me lean on it really hard, okay? So... Um, Following Jesus is sometimes hard. And a lot of the things, like, there are literally whole series that people do. There's books been written on the hard sayings of Jesus. You can write a whole book on it. There's a lot of things that Jesus says that are hard. You know, one of the things I remember in working with a a very seeker-sensitive church at one point in my life in ministry, and they would, like, always go, yeah, just don't read that part. Don't read that part. And I was like, you, you literally, you, I'm gonna, you want me to read this text and just kind of skip those few verses? Yeah, it just takes too long to explain on a Sunday morning. And I was like, so we're just going to leave people with the toughest parts of the Bible, like, not talked about. I just don't think that's a good idea, you know. We're inviting people to Jesus, and then we're not going to talk about the tough stuff. So maybe I, maybe I talk about the tough stuff too much, but uh, Jesus asks, then even of the twelve, do you want to leave also? I don't get the impression from either the construction or the ongoing conversation that this is like a pleading Jesus. You're not going to leave me too, are you? I get the impression this is so, you, you want to leave too? He's weeding out. He says in really strong language, only those whom the Father draws. There is a, a quickening of their hearts. It's not exactly the seeker-sensitive Jesus of the modern megachurch. It's amazing how many times Jesus says things that are just not real seeker-sensitive. And then Peter steps up here. Amid the defection of, you know, and and us remembering that, you know, Peter has his own defection, right? I mean, he has that moment of weakness in which he denies knowing Jesus. And yet... I think a great deal of that was he didn't expect what happened, and that's why he's able to recover. It's not his lack of love for Jesus, it's his lack of understanding why he stumbles. But here in this moment, this is what makes Peter the leader of leaders. When, when the crowd is scattering, when there's only the handful left, 
Will you leave me also? Where would we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. It's interesting, you know, sometimes people will, in, in a way, kind of pit Peter and John against one another in, in a number of things, uh, pointing specifically to the question on the beach when Peter is told about the end of his life and he says, well, what about him, the beloved disciple? What, what about him? We'll get to that eventually, right, as we get through to the end of this uh, book. But uh, nonetheless, he, there's that one moment where he says, well, what about him? And he says, well, you don't worry about him. You know, he, 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 that's between he and I. What you need to be concerned about is yourself. And so there is this, uh, you, you can parse it out in some weird ways, but like honestly, what John is doing here is actually pointing to the strength and, and how he puts those words in Peter's mouth. I'm sure that Peter said them. I'm just simply saying he, he wants us to know that Peter rises up in the midst of it when no one else, when everybody else was kind of sitting there dumbfounded, and Peter's the one who says, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. He's reemphasizing the whole structure, the whole direction of this uh, of this gospel, of this biography of Jesus. He's reemphasizing again, eternal life is found in him. And Peter recognizes that even in the things he doesn't understand, even in the things that are hard to hear. The one thing that he knows is who he knows. We've been with you. We know who you are. We've, we've been around you. We've seen your character. We've seen your personhood. It's not like the kind of the superstar preacher who behaves one way badly in private and then uh, uh, acts another way in public and then is glamorized for being something that he isn't. No, in deep in the sense of discipleship type of Christianity, deep in the sense of them being disciples of Jesus, of learning his life, of eating from the bread of his life, if you will, over time, is he looks at the situation, doesn't fully understand the metaphor and all of this, and he says, where would I go? Where would we go? Like, we know who you are. We've been with you. And so we choose you. We choose life because we've discovered life in your midst. We've found life through you, through the presence of we have, we have seen and heard the very thing you're talking about. That once you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. Once you've seen Jesus, you know the great I am. And so this expectation in his part and his confession. You see, this is often the thing about following Jesus. Have you noticed... The crowd here in John is not unlike the crowd in Exodus when Moses was speaking and giving them manna. You see, in Exodus, what they wanted was the leeks and the onions, right? They didn't really want God. And in this moment, I mean, you fill in the blank for the crowd. Some are there wanting essentially leeks and onions. Give us more bread. We heard that it was some really good bread. Some are there with a, a mindset of that 
give us the Messiah we want, give us deliverance, give us back the vote, or whatever the political persuasion. The crowd wants bread, the crowd wants signs and wonders, the crowd wants a certain kind of deliverance, but not what they're being given. And in the contrast, there are still, here are the authentic disciples amidst the crowd. And even when they don't understand fully what's being said, what they want is eternal life. So that even in the midst of hard things, even in the midst of the things we don't understand, even in the midst of God doing things that, uh, that create turmoil, in our, this expectation, this desire, like, God, I don't always understand what you're up to. I don't always understand your ways, but I know that you are the way. I know that you're the hope. I know that you're eternal life, and so where else would I go? And I think that's true for most of us as we're walking with Jesus that in the course of life that you and I find ourselves uh, constantly in situations. I'd like to say that it's a rare thing, but by my own confession, maybe your experience has been different. I, I doubt it. But by my own experience, like walking with Jesus has been this constant thing of which I see his goodness at work in my life, I see his kindness, I see his mercy, I see his justice, all laid right alongside of a world that's full of turmoil and difficulty and pain and hardship and suffering and unjust accusations and all. And so it just kind of sometimes depends on where I'm casting my gaze as to whether or not I see the world in light of his goodness and grace or whether I go, oh man, life is hard. I can say, I see you where you were here, but I, I don't necessarily see where you were in this, Lord. Help me to understand. But where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. And so I would say to you, you know, like if, if you're living in that tension, as most of us are, and right now you find yourself kind of focused on that, that side of like, all I see, I see hardship, I see pain, I see difficulty. God, I don't know, I don't, I don't know where you were in the midst of this, and I don't know how to cope with this. Like, that's part of the beauty of being the body of Christ. There's always somebody who's got, you know, all rosy-eyed looking on the other side, right? And so we, we build one another up, we spur one another on to love and to good deeds, we encourage one another, we build one another up, we give testimony to one another. Not because you don't know, but to remind you. There is a long historical reality from the Old Testament through the New Testament and throughout church history that when we follow hard after God, that God takes care of his people. But when the people pursue needs and wants, here's what ends up happening. They end up departing from the way. Begin to pursue stuff as the highest value, even while they continue to worship God. And the truth is that in the end, because they put the stuff and the things first, job, career, money, education, whatever, you name it, 
when they put that first. God becomes, in their minds, the servant to get them what they need and want. And that breaks the relationship. God is, God is not your servant. We're His. And so you and I have been called to worship Him, to pursue Him, to know Him, to obey Him. And in doing so, then the overflow of that is that He provides for all our needs, our many wants. But the point is always it's pursuing God in the way that He is pursuing us. It is a, a, an earnest desire for a relationship. It's an earnest uh, sense of connecting with God and belonging to Him that drives it. And so when we find ourselves in these moments... And the parallels, and we can't seem to take our eyes off of these things, I will tell you that if you leave your eyes on these things, it will pull you a long, long way away. Even in the midst of maybe going to church and worshiping and, do you hear what I'm saying? Like, you think you're in the same place, but you've slowly found yourself in a wholly different place in terms of your relationship with him. And that's why we need the body. And anyone who says you're, they're too mature to, to have those problems, uh, that's the lie of Satan. You are, being, you are in the midst of the deepest deception you could possibly be in. Repent. Not because I need you to come here on Sunday. I, you know, if, if you don't want to be here on Sunday morning, then find the place you want to be on Sunday morning, right? But... Like, my, my earnest desire for you is that as the body of Christ, that we would encourage one another, build one another up. This is why we need each other. This is why we need the body of Christ. If you're just in the crowd, listen, the crowd is noisy. The crowd has all kinds of thoughts and wants and everything else. But here's the problem is the crowd isn't pursuing Jesus. It's pursuing something else. And you and I, our, our, our need is to pursue Jesus. And then as we pursue Jesus together, to encourage and build one another up in our holy faith. All right. Well, let's stand together. We're out of time. So maybe this morning, uh, that's your greatest need this morning. You, just, you need to be reminded by... Uh, fellow believers, to be encouraged, to be built up. And, and I would say to this morning, I, you could do that in a number of ways. One is you could simply maybe talk to the person standing right next to you and say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this today. I, I, my eyes are, instead of being on the prize, it's on a different prize. And I feel defeated. I feel shortchanged. I feel hardship, maybe you're suffering in some situation, um, maybe you're not even able to be with us here this morning, you're watching online and you're re wrestling with that right now, like, God, what is it you're doing in the midst of this? I don't understand, and this is where is the body, we encourage one another, we build one another up, we need one another. On the other hand, maybe uh, that's something that you just so wrestling with you don't even you're struggling with even telling someone 
And so in a little bit here, when I call up prayer team, maybe that's your invitation. You would just come and get some prayer. You would say, hey, I don't know how to process this. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to deal with it. Would you pray with me, for me? Would you not only pray with me right now, but would you continue to pray for me over the next coming several weeks, months, whatever, that I'm working through this? Um, would you care for me as a part of the body of Christ? You know, as we make that invitation, it is often true that uh, the biggest reason people don't come up and get prayer is not because they don't want prayer, it's because somehow that coming forward like cast dispersion on people somehow. I, I, I know what it is. It, it goes back to kind of the Southern Bible Belt culture in the mourner's pew where they'd get up and read people's sins off, you know, to the whole congregation so they could repent. And, um, uh, and that has still like affected our headset in, in the Southern, you know, Bible Belt church. Uh, and so uh, I want to say to you this morning, like it's really quite the opposite. This should be a safe place. It's one-on-one. -on -one. No one's going to read your sins out loud or whatever. You could come for something that has nothing to do with sins or struggles. You could just simply come in a celebratory thing, get some prayer. Uh, you could be praying about other things that uh, you're working through, uh, need wisdom, need understanding. Uh, but I just want to encourage you every, that everybody in this place struggles with the same kind of stuff uh, because it's, we, we share a common problem, humanity, <laughs> a common problem, our fallenness. And so uh, I just want to invite you, please, don't let that get in the way of getting some prayer this morning, either praying with somebody next to you, praying uh, with people up front here, whatever you need this morning, but come and get some prayer. Father, we're grateful for your son Jesus. We're grateful for your kindness and mercy that you have poured out on us in Jesus uh, making evident of your long desire to not only fulfill the scripture, but because it was from the very beginning your heart's desire for us to be reconciled to yourself and to live and reign with you forever and ever. As we look toward that great day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, as we look forward to the eternity of uh, living and dwelling with you in an unceasing manner, we're grateful that you're here with us in the mix, in the midst of pain, sorrow, and difficulty, and that in fact you are the God who does not leave us or abandon us, that your spirit is with us. And so, Father... In this moment, we ask, would you remind us, would you strengthen us by your Holy Spirit? Would you strengthen us through the uh, remembrance and the confession one to another? Would you remind us in our prayers for one another and strengthen us? And even in praying for others, might we likewise be instructed as we speak words of life and hope to them? May it also strengthen us. Father, thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to stop at nothing to make the way for us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the, worship, or the prayer team, go ahead and come on up. Let me encourage you to come get some prayer. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. God bless. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. 
That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.